0: The podcast starts.
1: Hello, dear listener. First things first, this is not going to be the episode that I said it was going to be at the end of the previous episode of the podcast. It continues to be the case that our attempts to make plans for this series of the podcast are frustrated by the difficulties of my life. So, um, random factors have conspired that this episode is both late and not what i intended it to be we're going to come back to simon clark talking about Quatermass a little later but instead what we have today is a discussion that was originally intended for release coinciding with the the cinema release of the recent exorcist believer film which at the time this podcast drops will have been in cinemas for a few weeks. We're rather late to the party. This episode that you're about to hear is not a discussion of that film because it was recorded some months ago. It is instead a discussion of the first sequel to The Exorcist uh, ever made, which was 1977's Exorcist II, The Heretic. Myself, Ian and Stella, with the help of our special guest, the film critic, Neil Young are going to be talking about this movie I think you will be able to appreciate the discussion even if you haven't seen the film because it is such a bizarre and unique film that it's kind of unspoilable um all the details we give away about it will still not quite um coalesce to give you the complete idea of what the film is like and in fact um the oddness of the film is emblematized within the the trailer for the movie which you can see on youtube i would normally include the soundtrack of a trailer um to help to contextualize discussion of a film or tv show usually you know there are some sound clips pieces of dialogue and things in a trailer which um give the listener a good sense of what the movie is like however that is not the case with the trailer of the exorcist 2 i think it is um it is kind of clear that the studio did not know what they had with this movie and how to promote it and so the trailer basically says here comes the exorcist 2 and then there is um a frantic edit of soundless clips set to extraordinary disco music um in a way it doesn't help An audio podcast to set the scene for the film, so I thought better of including it in the discussion of the movie. Neil Young is in the unusual position of finding The Exorcist 2 a more interesting film than its original, which, of course, is one of Ian's favourites and a favourite of all of us on the podcast, if any of you were able to. Um, cast your minds back, or re-listen to our discussion of The Exorcist 3 from a while ago. And in fact, this this episode did inspire me to go back and re-watch the original film, which remains wonderful. And you know, we should really do an episode about that sometime. But anyway, it's it's better to look for the more interesting and unlikely subjects to discuss, and that's why we're talking about The Exorcist 2. In any case. Everybody knows that the best Exorcist film is the Dyslexist, in which your mother cooks socks in hell. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. And you know what? The music from that teaser trailer is so funky that you've just got to hear
2: it. Four years ago, the Exorcist shocked the world. Now, the struggle between good and evil goes on. <laughs> Exorcist II The Heretic to the heretic.
1: Welcome back to the podcast on which we talk about horror. Sometimes we talk about other things and often we swear. Today I am joined by two marvelous guests in what we might call the studio and also another, Um, of our friends joining us a little bit later remotely i'm joined right now by the wonderful ian winterton hello ian hello and here we have a very special guest film critic neil young hello neil good evening we're honored to have your presence sir and tonight we're going to be discussing the movie Exorcist Two: the heretic from 1977. We have we're developing a bit of a tradition on this podcast of talking about franchises in reverse order. So we've already talked about Exorcist three. So now it's time to do two. Um, Now (laughs) this is not um, generally a very lauded movie. Um, In fact, when it was released in 1977, it was kind of torn apart by most critics. But there are Three highly regarded individuals who think *Exorcist 2 is better than the original. One of them is Martin Scorsese, another one is Pauline Kale and the third is our guest today, Neil.
0: It Ooh, is what, what illustrious company I'm keeping there. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And we're not we're not setting you up to have to hold up that end of quality in your. Um, in your discourse at all but we've got um an interesting discussion i feel sure especially since um ian i think it's it's probably well known to listeners of this podcast that ian your favorite movie ever is the exorcist and you've never
3: watched the exorcist 2 before until until a couple of days ago right yes yeah the exorcist is definitely definitely in my top five
0: but, but you have but you deliberately avoided watching the sequel to your favorite film
3: um I think I had um and I and I kind of yeah and I only really watched Exorcist 3 fairly recently as well mm. I is just that because,
0: really, is that because the Exodus is such a sort of sacrosanct holy thing I think
3: so it's a bit like I've never been in I love jaws and I've never been interested in the sequels because they just felt I, yeah. I just I just sense mean... I, I just I just sensed and having seen bits of them as a kid that i didn't that they weren't the same kind of film
0: but with all respect to jano schwarz who directed uh jaws two mm. and and uh whoever it was who directed Jaws three uh joe alvis i think it was um, Yeah, the
1: production designer of joel's yeah went on so to direct joel's three yeah
0: with, with all respect to those two eminent guys you know we're talking john borman and william peter blatty as the director of two and three here so i would say we're not
3: that we're is not true. Kind of, you know, we're not kind of going off into some um, trauma bill. No, uh, I, I think I think I just always heard heretic uh, exists two was just something to not touch, and ooh. I just heard it was awful, and I probably should have watched it at some point. But hey. Ooh. I then get to watch it for the first time for this podcast.
0: Because you know, there is that idea that I the,
3: kind of wish I hadn't seen it to be honest. But uh. yeah, there,
0: there is the <laughs> idea. Well, as as the saying goes, once seen you cannot unsee it. But you know, there's there is this idea that I think some people in the Catholic Church or some religious people thought that there was something in the in the exorcist, in the actual somehow in the body of the film, somehow in the in the material of the film, which was evil. Mm. Mm. And and to even expose yourself to to this to this experience would be to risk possession, risk the devil mm. and things like this. And it's kind of interesting that you know a lot of people now regard Exorcist 2 for completely secular reasons as this <laughs> untouchable object, which is in theory a film, which in theory you could watch at any day of the week. But like, how many people have seen it? You know, it's this. It's and that's that's what I call power yeah you know <laughs> I mean it's, it's all very well the late Martin Amos uh who would take his girlfriends to see the Exorcist because they afterwards they were too scared to sleep alone you know that was Martin <laughs> amos's dating technique so wow. I th- I think that kind of tells you about the real power of the Exorcist films is it number two is the one that everybody's actually scared of
3: yeah <laughs> yeah in in uh be- because it, it's and you don't even is- ha-
0: you don't even have to see it and it it scares the willies up here, you know. So
3: yeah, it's it's well, it's it does silly the uh just silly the original. To- what did Stella think of it?
1: In case the listener is not familiar with the film, and, and as we've just suggested, maybe lots of people have not actually seen Exorcist Two. Um, will uh, we will just describe what is contained in the movie. Whereas The Exorcist was the story of a uh, young Reagan McNeil, uh, played by Linda Blair and uh the, h- the horrific possession um that she goes through where she is possessed by something which maybe the devil maybe a demon is not quite specified but um two priests are summoned to exercise the spirit from her and both die in the attempt but ultimately prevail the exorcist 2 which is written and direct written by a man called william goodhart and directed by john Borman, um different writers and directors than uh, the than those who did The Exorcist. Um, It picks up the story a few years later, and uh, Regan is now undergoing therapy. um, uh, at The hands of um, an experimental therapist played by Louise Fletcher. And at the same time as this um, therapy is kind of reviving some of uh, Regan's memories of possession. Um, a different priest, Father Lamont, played by Richard Burton, has been assigned by the Vatican to investigate the original exorcism and uncover uh, what happened to Father Marin, um, the character played by Max von Sydow in the original, who does appear in the sequel in flashbacks. Um, and the movie goes in strange directions from from this premise. it well, is it, fairly strange how you know, it gets to that premise, to be honest. Um, I think what we should do before the three of us get into discussing it is we'll cut to a little bit of input from um, our our regular co-host, Dr. Stella Gainer, who was sadly unable to make this recording. But did record a few thoughts, um, and well, they speak for themselves. Um, let's have a listen to those. So, hello, Stella.
4: Hey, Dan. You're all right.
1: I'm not too bad. I'm delighted and looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Exorcist too. So <laughs> the first thought we had from you on our Facebook chat was the wonderful phrase "utter garbage," <laughs> which I think should be on the Blu-ray case. "Utter garbage," Doctor Stella Gainer. So
4: um, one star, wonder,
1: wonderful. <laughs> so please, please elaborate.
4: Oh God, right. I think I can I can sum up how. My watch of this film went now to be fair, um, I'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I only watched the Exodus three because we talked about it many, many episodes ago. I think mm-hmm. I'd not um I mean Ian's not here, so I can say this. I, I do enjoy The Exodus, but I didn't feel compelled to watch any more of the films. Mm-hmm. Um yes, it's a great film, Ian. Sorry. Uh, but you know. So it's all right, we're gonna watch Exodus 2 When I found it and I looked at it and I had to watch it in four. Sittings because I couldn't watch it for too long. It just drove me mad. Right. I was just like, what is this? So I put it on on Sunday evening, sat down, had my tea, I had a glass of wine, bowl of snacks. Brilliant. Watch a film on a Sunday evening, stuck it on about seven o'clock. And by about 7 45, I was just like, oh my God, making <laughs> it stop. <laughs> <laughs> so i paused it so i was like right i'm not paying attention and you catch yourself and you're like oh god now i'm messing about on my phone like you're not paying attention stop it finish it tomorrow so then it was monday and on my lunch break i was like right i'll finish the film now it's about an hour and 10 minutes left i'll finish the film excellent stuck it on and again 20 minutes later oh god (laughs) i get stuck i turned it off again and i put it back on later and then i finished it off um yesterday morning i believe no tuesday morning two days ago so i just found it really hard to watch like mm. i mean okay you the first film is legendary and iconic and genuinely terrifying you know and all those wonderful things and the exorcist 2 it doesn't need to be terrifying to be a good horror film that's not what i'm asking for it but from it but where was the horror like it felt it was all sort of stuffed at the end i felt the horror mm. bit and the the early bit felt a bit like am i watching something a bit sci-fi what's happening and all the mm. characters were just really flat i felt and mm. i guess i don't know i think with reagan it's just like she was such that characters like she's been through so much and i think i just wanted more from her like she was just this annoying everything's fine child and i was like "Oh, i can't can't watch you and yeah i didn't i did not enjoy i'm sorry oh
1: well i think that your review echoes lots of responses to the movie oh does it Uh, (laughs) i won't prefigure my discussion with neil and ian but i will say that that's how i felt after i initially saw it um when did you first watch it then
4: many years ago right so you've got previous on this one
1: yes yes i've I've seen it for a long time ago like i watched exodus 2 when exodus 1 was still banned
4: right okay
1: so, um wow. <laughs> and uh and bits of it have stuck with me but um in a way not a lot because except the the impression of not really knowing what's going on um and um <laughs> I think you might be able to relate to that. Um
4: yeah, I had to keep pause when I in the like the 25 minute blocks that I could take it in. I had to keep pausing it and I kept looking at the um the plot on Wikipedia to be like what's happening? Why is why is that going on? And yeah, okay, I did keep stopping it, but I think I think the story that it told was probably okay, but I felt it could have been told in an hour and 10 minutes rather than it's a really long film as well. It just I kept pausing it and being like, What how long's left? And I just felt like all the scenes were really drawn out with not much happening. And I think maybe if it had been condensed, if it sort of ran through everything a bit quicker, then it might have been a bit more exciting. But there was just too much sitting around and yeah, I it I would just wasn't I wasn't hooked in and I didn't care about anyone. Sorry, Reagan. <laughs> I just I did I I didn't care what no. happened to anybody.
1: I think she's a different character in this movie, really. Um, I think, you know, uh, what's her name? The maid, Mm. Reagan's kind of maid. I know she's in The the Exorcist. I can't remember much of her in that. She's probably got more to do in this, but again, therefore might as well be a different character. Um, um, I, I did... I, I guess I, I I am sort of slightly going into my thoughts, uh, which I'm sure I'll elaborate more on later. Um, I felt like I didn't think it was really trying to be scary a lot mm. of the time. Um, I didn't. I'm not saying whether or not I thought it worked, but I did think that most of what it does do seemed kind of deliberate. It wasn't one of those bad movies where you just like, what the hell are they doing? Yeah, it wasn't um, a mess.
4: It just, yeah, I just, I just didn't understand. Because I mean, I guess there's that problem in The Exorcist Three, in sort of where's the connection in this mm. franchise? Like, what's what's happening here? Um, and with with the with the original film, you, you're not unless you just remake something of a very similar story. What else are you going to do with it? You know, this is, somebody's possessed. Now you're going to try mm. and deal with it, okay? And it, well, you know, there's, there's many films that do that. So I just, I just, yeah, I don't know what they were trying to do. <laughs> what are you it's trying to fun. achieve with this film?
1: I've just had a thought. Um, you know, when this movie was made, there had not been many sequels, um, and, and the big one that there had been though was The Godfather Part Two, which ah. is a prequel and sequel. Mm which the access two is as well I mean yeah. I think um in a way the the easiest bits to understand I think of the flashbacks with Father Mary in, in Africa mm. because you kind of know how that relates to the previous film yeah um but in terms of how it relates to what's going on in this one is not so clear something about locusts <laughs> <laughs> which, which we'll get into um yeah, so no, I I I'm, I don't I'm not in, uh, entirely surprised that that you reacted like that. Um, <laughs> it's not a million miles away from my reaction. Um, I'm really intrigued to know what Neil's going to say because. Oh well, yeah,
4: isn't he supposed to be a super fan?
1: Um, Spoilers. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I might have to cut this bit out if it's wrong, but I think Ian said that that Neil prefers mm. two to one.
4: Well, I, mean, I Ian did say that because I kept thinking about that when I was watching it, and just thinking, why? <laughs> what, <laughs> what is what could possible? What is in this film that surpasses it as as an exorcist film? I, I don't know. Maybe you know well, future we'll podcast Neil can explain this
1: <laughs> I mean I I assume for instance that John Borman who directed Exorcist 2 prefers it to Exorcist 1 because <laughs> apparently he didn't like the Exorcist one and that's why 2 is so different
4: right it's like
1: he's corrective to it so so maybe if you don't like Exorcist 1 then you might prefer Exorcist 2 I think they're very very different films yeah um but um as a, whether or not that's uh, Neil's reasoning. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say as a closing thought, then, Stella?
4: Um, I. The only thing that I would I would add on is that now that I have seen all three films, I am glad that I've seen all three films. Um, well,
1: although there are five.
4: Oh God! Are there? <laughs> all well, right. There's, well...
1: there's four, but there's two versions of four. Like two totally different versions so different they might as well be different films all right, and well, then then. <laughs> yeah so and and don't think we're not getting to that Ugh. because <laughs> because Stella there's a new Exorcist movie coming out this year and two more planned after that so this is a franchise which well, is resurrecting
4: well, I was gonna say I'm glad I've seen them all, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> although I did enjoy the TV series
1: oh yeah I think Ian likes the TV show as well I haven't seen it so Mm -hmm. we'll we'll find out um so so last thing then any questions Stella that you'd like us to explore in the discussion because between recording this with you and doing the thing with Ian and Neil I'm going to go away and do some research Uh, about why this movie is like it is
4: that's the question why
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of fascinating yeah, it's um, just
4: such a odd... I mean, yeah, if you take all three films, if you think of them together, I know there's more films, and if you take all three films, that they're all so wildly different. Yes. Maybe as a bunch, that's a good thing, but I won't be watching it again. Right, okay.
1: Well, not even in the slightly different edit. Nope. Um, right, which I realised <laughs> shortly into it that... Um, the version I saw decades ago was must have been the different cut.
4: Right. Because it had
1: a different beginning, and I remembered that. Right,
4: okay. Um, I don't but, think that's going to save it, though.
1: <laughs> no, and I'm not sure it's kind of widely available in different versions, like part three is and part four is every exorcist film has to have several different versions even the first one i think has three different versions
4: oh why
1: (laughs) (laughs) so the one that's coming out this year there'll be an extended cut there'll be an unrated cut there'll be a blu-ray exclusive i I don't doubt Uh, it for a second
4: all right well let's pick one and watch that one
1: (laughs) right okay okay Stella. here we go then we'll, for, just for you we're going to do a deep dive into exercises two and find out exactly why it is like it is or at least we're going to try <laughs> and answer that question who knows Great. if there is an answer thanks Dan. thank you thank you Stella thank you for your time and your forbearance <laughs> for this particular podcast <laughs> All right, we'll see you on the next Exorcist. Oh, well, we've got an Omen Jew coming up, haven't we? So, we're going to do even more devil movies.
4: <laughs> <So>. Oh, God. <laughs>
1: All right, thank you so much, star See you on the other side. that was stella and her thoughts on exorcist 2 i think the thoughts that she expressed are not a million miles away from those of many many critics and audience members over the years um neil i want to start our discussion of the movie though by asking the question um because I know that you know you rate this movie and um and and you're happy to be seen as a defender of it and to kind of suggest that it's better than the the original I find myself (laughs) um wanting to ask of course um everybody has different criteria of quality um and this movie has qualities to it which I'm sure we will identify but if one approaches it um from the angle that its aim uh, as a sequel is to recreate what the original film did, it could only be judged as <laughs> a failure. And I guess you're judging it on different criteria than that, am I right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't hire John Borman to recreate William, William Friedkin. Mm. I mean, that's like chalk meets cheese You know, meets antimatter. I mean, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Borman was originally approached to do the first film, you've got to remember, he was hot from Deliverance, yeah. which he was nominated for the Oscar uh, Best Director. Having previously done Point Blank, I mean, there are other films, are the last but in terms of Hollywood, he was the guy who got Lee Marvin in Point Blank, amazing, you know, film, a classic. Mm. Mm. He then tackled a very difficult book, Deliverance, which is written by James Dickey, he was a poet, um, yeah. and Cast an un, a fairly unknown and not taken seriously TV actor Burt Reynolds, who became a, a, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood for the next ten years. John Voight, um, Ned Beatty—you know that film is also a classic. It made lots of money, as well as being a classic, as well as being faithful to the book. So Borman has established himself even in his first film, which is Us If You Can," having a wild weekend, which is um, which was conceived as the Dave Clark Five answer to the Beatles films which is, again, an unpromising beginning there for John Borman. He was able to transcend that and make a film which is which still still watchable today. I mean, it, it's really an excellent film. So Borman comes into the, comes, let's, let's go back to 1971, 72. He's finished Deliverance. The studio offers him The Exorcist, which is the book by William Peter Blatty. Borman, who is not himself a Catholic, but was educated in a Catholic school, rejects the offer. He's not interested in filming this book the book is filmed by William Friedkin becomes the biggest box office success of all time. They go back, Friedkin makes clear he doesn't want to do a sequel. They go back to Borman. They go back to, I mean, there were were several directors who were approached. Obviously, it wasn't just John Borman, but Borman was was approached before Friedkin. So they come back to John Borman. Now, Borman's in the position of doing what he wants. And what he doesn't want to do is a horror film. Hmm. Uh, And he does not want to recreate the original because as I say, William Friedkin who I have a huge amount of respect for and if anybody gets the chance to read his book The Friedkin Connection it's really one of the best books and I was fortunate enough to interview him a couple of years ago in Poland and he's a terrific speaker you know a wonderful ornery bastard basically but he's, a, he's <laughs> a brilliant he's a brilliant director and a great talker and the way he talks about Exorcist too, I think is very ungracious because he's he's a guy who you know was nominated for the Oscar for directing The Exorcist having just won the Oscar for The French Connection it becomes the biggest box office hit of all time. His fellow director, John Borman, tries to do something completely different and everybody's crapping on him from a great height. And Friedkin joins in the dog pile, which I thought was really unfair of William Freakin. Yeah, can, Friedkin can...
1: famously said that it was the work of a deranged mind. Good. I mean, that,
0: I, think, I don't think John Borman would object to that. Uh, John yeah. Borman would say, we have The Exorcist. This is a beautifully, incredibly well-made film. Whatever else it is, it's brilliantly directed. I mean, I think Borman took fourth, fifth grade material. I mean, you know, nobody expected this film to be Oscar nominated and make millions of dollars, even though it was uh, from the director of The French Connection. Um, I think he took fairly unpromising material, a a bit of a a bit of a, a sow's ear and made a hell of a silk purse out of it. You know, but what Borman is doing is coming in a completely different angle. You know, if you hire John Borman to do your film, do not be surprised if he delivers something which you could be described as being the, the fruit of a deranged mind. The other film that he made before this when he didn't do the Exodus was Zardoz. Yes. You yes. know, so so again, the studios know that Zardoz exists. Everybody knows this film purely because of Sean Connery and his red underwear and Charlotte Rambo yeah. looking confused. So again, you know. You hire John Borman and John Borman is not going to do a studio film which everybody is gonna line up and see and and everybody's gonna think it's, oh, it's just like, the, oh, it's even better, blah, you know, whatever, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. Now, of course, he delivers the film. He, he gets the script, he, he makes the film, the studio is interfering, the the shoot is problematic, it's going all over the place, there are rewrites. Borman brings in his collaborator, Rospo, Rospo Pallenberg, who is the major sort of shadowy figure in Borman's uh, films. And what you end up with is the studio pulling one way, Borman pulling the other, trying to get his vision to the screen. And what we get is somewhere between the two. Now, I would rather have that than the slick manipulative package, which is The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist, everybody, when everybody watches that film, My God, it works. You know, I just put on Twitter today that one of my favorite sequences in that film is is simply uh, Ellen Burson walking through the streets of Georgetown with tubular bells in the background. Freakin, tubular bells was unknown. William Freakin decided to use 19-year-old Mike Oldfield's weird synth music in this thing about satanic possession in Georgetown. You know, there are many brilliant things in that film, but the, the more you dig into it, the less there is, I think. And The Exorcist appears to be this gigantic you know, clusterfuck of a film, but the more you dig into it and the more you rewatch it, the more you get out of it, I would say, which is to me, I don't I don't think, I wouldn't want to use the words better or worse, because I think with The Exorcist 2, we're going beyond value considerations of this is good, this is bad. Of course, mm-hmm. there are bad things in The Exorcist 2. The question is why, what are they? What questions do they raise? Because what questions does The Exorcist raise? You know, how do you get rid of I don't know, how do you get rid of a demon? You bring in Max von Sydow wearing the greatest makeup in history because 40 years later that's what he looked like. Yes. You know, you, you bring in Max von Sydow. you bring in you bring in Jason Miller, who gives one of my favorite performances of the 70s. I mean, an incredible performance. He replaced Stacey Keach, of course, who who was hired by Freakin and then sacked when when Freakin went to see a play, and Miller was the author of the play. Well, I don't think he was even in it. So this freaky casting decision, Jason Miller comes in, who's a boxer. The character, Damien Karras is a boxer. Uh, Max von Sydow tries doing it with the Bible and out unclean spirit, the power of Christ commands you. That doesn't work. Max von Sydow dies. Jason Miller has a go without unclean spirit, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Jesus will do all this. That doesn't work. So what does he do? He beats the shit out of her. You know, <laughs> the, what, what actually gets the demon out of Regan in The Exorcist is not the power of prayer, it's the power of boxing. Now, I am I love That's boxing. I, I think, I think boxing is great. But you watch the <laughs> film. He loses his temper with her. He, it, he's, he's, yeah. he's seen Max von Sydow, Merrin, this great exorcist, is killed. He has a go. I mean, he's nowhere near as great an exorcist as, as von Sydow. That doesn't work. And he just loses his shit, as does Jesus in the Bible with the fig tree. And he just wails the shit out of her. And the demon is like, her this for a game of soldiers. I'm going to jump into him. And that's how he gets it out. Now, as I say, I love the fact that the, the exorcist is about boxing. It should, the, it should be called the box assist. But the defenders of the film, the, the defenders of the film who I respect never seem to mention this rather important detail, you know, which which is to be the pivotal point of the film. So as I say, you know, you you, you I, well, think, I think I, 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 think it's I, I because
3: sorry. his his passion and his and his rage is what the uh, which is almost what tempts the demon into him as well.
0: Well, as I say, it must be a coincidence that the that the demon jumps out just as he's beating the crap out of Regan, you know. So, as I say, this this is how I read that film. And I respect the exorcist. I think it's a fascinating film. It really works, you know. I mean, the, the problem with it is they've tinkered with it over the years, and there are all these stupid different versions. Mm-hmm. The the mm-hmm. version you've never seen and all that kind of crap. And then now there's a stupid one where where the demon's face appears in the in the chrome of the of the of the cooking range, and mm. nowhere. Which is you know just leave it alone. The original film, which I saw, it was the first film I ever saw on video. I was eleven years old, and in those days it was banned. You couldn't get yeah. it. In, you couldn't get it on mm. on official video. Woo. So you know that worked when I was eleven. It worked when I saw it in the cinema. It's a film that works. It's just a film that when the more you rewatch it, you more you see how manipulative Friedkin is because he's a great manipulative director. Borman is a great visionary director and he's got ideas and he thinks about what religion is. He doesn't just use it as a mechanism to scare the crap out of you. Now, there's a lot to be said for having the crap scared out of you. But with The Exorcist too, the more I've read about it, the more I've watched it. And of course, I acknowledge there are flaws. But even, even within the film itself, there are reasons why those flaws exist. And maybe we can get into that
1: that was a wonderful um outpouring of passion thank you so much for that Neil um it's it's kind of hard to know where to go to in the in the well, discussion next well, I um, I kind it,
3: of I, th- I thought that was so well argued and and I guess this is where like you were saying from the two different points of view is in a way the the you, I don't think you can separate that it's a sequel because because it's 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 like you know David Fincher made Alien 3 on its on its own Alien 3 is fine but as we've had on the podcast I cannot bear I cannot bear it because it's a sequel and it ruins a film I really like and and I think in a similar way this this isn't this this film does not work it's not in the same world as The Exorcist Um, it doesn't feel like the same world and and it, it just to start with the first twenty minutes, I was like, "Do you know what? I'm actually enjoying this. Maybe Neil is right."
0: I actually think the first half hour is, ter- is terrible.
3: I, well, but, but, that's, <laughs> but that's that's maybe my maybe my maybe my, my pedestrian tastes. Uh, no, I
0: mean we we can disagree on taste and things like that. But as I say, no, no. that's that's the part of the film that I think really is is a problem. It's it's when it's when we get to Africa, when we get to James Earl Jones, that it takes off. I mean, literally and metaphorically. But yeah, the first yeah. the, the first half hour, which is when you, especially the first time you see it, and I think this is maybe the problem that uh, that your, uh, the colleague Stella had is that you know you watch it once, you watch it the first time, and it's like, well, Jesus, what the fuck is this? You know, read the reviews. I mean, mm. it's such a. It, I've spent the last few days crying with laughter over the over the virtually every view of this every virtually every review of this film, is is either so. Vociferously negative, that the and just just to read synopses of this film, you know, when they say like, and then we get to the tap dance sequence. By the way, tap dance sequence. You know, I mean, I was crying. I was even though I disagreed with them, I was crying, crying with laughter. But yeah, the first time you watch the film, the first half hour which involves setting up who is Reagan, what is she doing, who is Jean Tuscan, the Louise Fletcher character, who is Father Lamont, what's going on, brings them together in this really kind of clunky way. Then we have this magical device... Which is called the what's it called the synchronizer? The synchronizer, oh,
3: yeah. which is yeah, like yeah.
0: these two flashing well, that's where lights. It,
3: that's where it totally lost me.
0: Yeah, and then and then you bit, the, the, <laughs> apparently the, the, you know there are so many legends about what happened when the film was premiered and when it when it was sneak previewed. The bit yeah. where Regan goes cross eyed when she's under the, the the synchronizer is apparently when the laughter started. Yeah, um, right. and 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 there are real problems. And then there's this bit. The, there's the bit which is so bad, which is um, Regan draws a picture of Lamont. With flames behind him, and Richard mm. Burton, who you know, God bless him, was struggling with the alcohol at this point, or maybe actually, I think this film sort of tipped him back <laughs> into the bottle. He um, was getting but, divorced at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you he know, took I, it. I, th- he I don't think I, I, I don't sorry, I don't think his diaries go up to the Exodus too, which I think would be would be definitely something to read. And I think he, I
1: might do actually.
0: Ah, um, I, I, I didn't I didn't find that, but but um, so anyway, he he sees this picture that Reagan's drawn with fire behind him. And then he goes into the basement and there's this tiny little fire in a box, in this cardboard box. And everybody goes with this giant panic and he starts hitting the box with a crutch. And Louise Fletcher says, oh, I'm going to call the fire department, which she does first before picking up the fire extinguisher. So you're sort of thinking, (laughs) what is this, a comedy? None of this makes any sense whatsoever. And there's this amazing, beautifully composed shot of Richard Burton looking like dazed. Hitting the fire with a with a small wooden crutch while Louise Fletcher's on the front of the pilot, and you're thinking, is this airplane? I mean, is, are we already in repossessed territory here? So I think I do not blame anybody that sits there and goes, "What on earth am I watching? I've got better things to do in my time than poor pissed Richard Burton beat trying to beat a, a thing with a with a, a box." And then this tiny little fire apparently puts all the children in danger, and they have to evacuate the whole building. And there's this Richard Burton's like, oh my god, this is she saved all the children from this, like like a this time. So as I say, but in the background of that scene, when they're standing outside, and I present this to him. You see the kids who are all these like damaged children with mental issues, and they've got this giant blanket, and they're sort of jumping up and down on the blanket. It's just a tiny little background detail, mm. no, and it... the film the film is full of those bizarre background details. Like there's this arguing couple in a museum who've got nothing to do with the plot. There's a scene on a train where this man appears in a white disco outfit the, mm. in the back in, in the back <laughs> in the background of the of, of the shots. Even even as you're reeling from how absurd and nonsensical it is, the film is kind of saying to you there's something else going on here. And if you have the patience, and if you have the imagination to make that leap, there's something there. And I think that is then delivered when the film goes to Africa, when James Earl Jones appears as Kakumo, and it all starts to come together. And even people who hate this film, even people who hate this film, there are two things they like, Ennio Morricone's music, which which is phenomenal, and the sequences with the locust flying through Africa, where you have the locust wings and you, you're going through the back of it and the music's going. And those are kind of terrific sequences. So even the even Mark Kermode, who has said this is the worst film ever made, I think even he will acknowledge that the film is not entirely without um, merits because of those sequences. And when once you get to Africa, if you've managed to get through this protracted nonsense with the synchronizer, the, the absurdity with the... Um, with the fire in the basement, you have the African sequence, and you have the sequence with Regan on the roof in the penthouse, which they built what? on top, which they built on top of an actual skyscraper from scratch, and it's all mirrors and chrome and all this kind of thing. Uh-huh. And that sequence is so weird and beautiful that I think if you can get through the first half hour, the sequence in Africa intercut with Regan on the on the penthouse, which, as I say, if you, even if you look at stills of it, you're kind of like, whoa. But John Borman. That is a director. I mean, Freakin' mm-hmm. would could never dream of doing a sequence like that. At that point, you should be back on board with it. But a lot of people would have just gone, "Not for me."
3: Well, yeah, like they said. Like it was William Peter Blatty said he was the first person to start laughing, and and then everyone kept, everyone was joining in. So. But
0: again, but again, you know, you're William Peter Blatty. You've just done the most successful film of all time. Yeah, you've got, you've got John Borman, some limey. Dude and some good heart who nobody's ever heard of. And they have the temerity to do a sequel to your film. Have mm. some have some grace, William Peter Blatty. Just have a bit of collegiate <laughs> spirit, don't you know? Yeah. And, and and to be proud of the fact that I was the first one to start laughing. I mean, Jesus, doesn't that tell you the kind of people that made the Exorcist? Can you yeah, imagine? Can, can you imagine John Borman ever saying, I went to see Blatty's Exorcist 3 and I started to laugh? You know, because John <laughs> Borman has a as a as a smidgen of, of of graciousness about it.
3: Yeah, yeah, but Sir, I, I
0: must, Sir John, no, Sir John I, I Borman, by the way, yeah. Sir John knighted oh, by the, Sir queen. John. the, 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 the queen. still alive the, as well, I saw from the the, the Queen just before she died said, "On, on I've just rewatched Exorcist two, and <laughs> I knight you with an Excalibur in the name <laughs> of yeah. the name of God, Harry and St George." A final yeah. act
3: of honour. Twenty years um, old, still going. Um, but uh, but I yeah. do agree with you, Neil. There were loads and loads of great scenes, but I think my main my main objection is one of tone, in that. This isn't a standalone movie. His job wasn't to make a standalone movie. And and some of that might be because, because it got ripped apart by by rewrites in the studio and all sorts of stuff. But I'm I, I just I just found A A, I just didn't like the I didn't like the premise of making her special, linking her in with a bunch of Christ figures. Um, and all that nonsense well and I think it's be better,
0: better to say more, more more of a saint than, than a Christ figure. I mean she's not meant to, it's not meant to be the second coming this is not no me. no she's but, not, yeah, but uh, she's, she's sort David.
3: of one of she's supposed to be one of like a bunch of people but I, I guess I could just about by that but, but there's times when I just felt right it starts off feeling when I said the first 20 minutes I probably meant the first five when when it sort of feels like slightly naturalistic camera work it's you know that feels like the same film that started in Iraq well you're basically talking um, and, and, and the they're exorcism. in South America and it's yeah you're talking and about that, the that, that feels, that feels like this is the same universe and then it goes weird science fiction with a sort of ESP device that doesn't exist in the real world which is totally mm. totally outside of the that's not the same world as the Exorcist and then it then it has then it goes to full on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom vibe when he's um, with the, you know, with the locusts and the, I don't know,
0: and you have the the city on top of the hill that you can only get to by going up some really yeah. big rope ladder. Poor Richard Burton, you know, I think even as a young man might have struggled with that. But, <laughs> but, but at, yeah, that, yeah. at that point in his career, the last thing he wants is to be squeezing between crevasses and kind of getting hauled up, and the poor I guy know. sweating his thing off. No, I mean, as I say, I, we we have to put it into the context of why is it like that. The day after it premiered, it was withdrawn and recut. I think it was re- withdrawn and recut twice. So yeah. who knows what versions we have? And it's a um, bit like a bit, a bit like Magnificent Amber. You know, we probably will never see the, the, the maybe maybe we can see it, but I've, I've never been aware of a kind of John Borman's approved thing. I think he just wanted to forget it and move on. You know, yeah, I mean, I he, it's, he, it's not something he lingered on. And then he went on to do Excalibur. You know, I mean, he was going to, I think he was going to do Lord of the Rings, but then he went on to Excalibur, which I think we can all agree is, you know, a much more my coherent my, film. One you know,
3: of my favourite films. Yeah. Ian so loves amazing.
1: Excalibur. So do I. Um, I can yeah. speak a little bit to the different cults because on rewatching the film this time, I realized that uh, the previous time i would watched it, which was 20 years ago. Last time I watched this movie, The Exorcist one was still banned. Oh. I'd seen it. Um, so I watched uh, I'd seen it on pirate video. So I got The Exorcist 2 out of my local video shop um, and I was immediately struck by the narration at the start by Richard Burton which kind of recaps the plot of the previous yeah. film
3: you know I watched that that on film. youtube earlier yeah
1: okay yeah
3: so and also so, we see him we
0: see him go into the church which i think is very important because it begins with this rather impressive outdoor shot and right, where you see this kind of obviously latin american or spanish whatever it is you know mm. you it it puts it into a bit of a context and it's and it's a beautiful shot whereas mm. the version that most people see the sort of standard version you're already in the church it's a bit murky you're not quite sure what's going on and i think mm the the version with the narration and the images to sort of tie it in is actually to me it works a lot better
1: and do you know if the the uh, version with the narration was the second one did they initially... i believe
0: i believe they they insisted on that because uh preview audiences and the opening audiences were just were kind of what is this exactly we've kind of forgotten what was going on in the exorcist but but right. it, i'm interested what he said about you know it's what was his job what was borman's job i mean obviously hmm. it's a studio job he's hired to do to, to make a sequel to the exorcist but again, it was not his job to make a scary horror movie, which is like the Exorcist. and I think to and to continually compare the film to the Exorcist. I mean when Borman talks about it he just calls it the heretic, you know he doesn't call it the Exorcist mm. too. and I think and I think he, I think every film should exist on its own merits. I mean every film, uh, whether it's a sequel, whether it's a remake, whether it's a prequel, I think a, a film is a film and and I I'm always very wary of saying, well, this film that and this film the other one. Um, and I prefer. I think there's enough in this film going on. I think there's enough to 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 sustain interest in the film and to sustain investigation and and thought and rewatching. Without and if you keep saying, well, it's not like the first one, then you know, don't watch it. I mean, Exorcist three also was was recut because Blatty's version didn't have an exorcism in it.
3: Yeah, I didn't and, like that. And,
0: and so <laughs> the studio brought in uh, cut in Nicole Williamson, which again, if we're yeah. talking about tonal. Issues. I mean, I think yeah, Exodus 3 yeah. is a very good film. Um, but again, in terms of how good it can be, given the material, given who's doing it. I mean, Blatty also did uh, The Ninth Configuration
4: uh, mm-hmm.
0: with Stacey Keach, which is another great kind of loop, loopy, crazy film, which uh, a lot of people have a lot of problems with. But I oh, you know, I love I think, that movie. Yeah, I mean, in that one, he fought I mean, that's Blatty in a way kind of trying to do what Borman did. You know, it's highly philosophical. It's 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 crazy. It's comic, as mm-hmm. as Carrier says. It's crazy. It's a party, um, and you know, it's as if he'd seen the Exorcist, uh, Exorcist Two, and thought, "Oh, well, maybe I could do something like that." And again, the Ninth Configuration. People that like it love it to death, and people that don't like it are just like, "What the hell is this?" It's mash meets, you know, uh, ex- some sort of exorcist thing going on and things like this based on a novel that he wrote before he wrote The Exorcist, Tw- Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane. So I think Blatty is is a kind of quite an interesting career. I don't think he's a thinker. I don't think he's a person who is, you know, I think he what he wrote The Exorcist to, to be a bestseller and it was. The The film of The Exorcist was made to be a a, a hit and it was. Exorcist hmm. 2, and I think we're going back to sort of this period of Hollywood when they would hire people like John Borman, and kind of let them go a bit. And even though they re-edited it and recut it, I think what even what we have is kind of quite true to Borman's vision. And of course, you know, there were famous disasters like Heaven, Heaven's Gate, and then we have it, as you say, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and those sorts of directors stopped being given those, those sorts of chances. So in a way, I kind of loved The Exodus 2 because it was the time when you could get a director who would be given a Hollywood franchise if you want to call it like that and completely subverted you know completely push it in a different direction and it was maybe the sign that those those days were coming to an end that the version that was thrown into the cinemas two weeks after star wars opened which is a rather different rather different james earl jones experience um and is given you know the famous one is sorcerer which was which was also out at the same time and was yanked and 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 went to see how it was doing and he said oh we've taken it out we put Star Wars in that screen because Star Star Wars just destroyed everything and the students were not they were not were just they didn't have the time or the patience they just didn't care about Exorcist 2 they pulled it they recut it they put it in again they pulled it and then it immediately became this gold you know I think the Golden Turkey Award said it was the second worst film of all time and all this kind of thing and that narrative forms itself but then there was an article Mm -hmm. by Todd McCarthy in film comment, which I haven't read, but I've read sort of um, summaries of it, which go into exactly what the the studio decisions were, why they did them, what the impact was. So as I say, I would rather have a kind of bizarre, mangled, subversive punk 1977 British guy going to Hollywood and sort of saying to the studios, you know, you want like a, you know, you want the exodus 2 I'll give you the exodus two, but it's not gonna be the one one that you want. And as I say, I, I think it's in a way kind of, I think Borman was bruised by the experience. And I think he sort of disowned the film, which I think is a shame. I mean, you know, it's not a, a, a coherent classic like point blank. It's not a, a visionary classic like Excalibur, but of of of, of the sort of even if we even if we talk about like horror films of the 70s or horror sequels of the 70s or of all time, it's it's one that that I keep sort of the more I think about it, the more I get out of it. And that that I think is a testament to some power in the film which it has, which I the more I look at the Exodus, the first one, I just don't see that. I, I think I think there is there is power of a different kind, which I find less interesting. But again, mm-hmm. that could be just my personal subjective opinion. But you know, why does Scorsese prefer it? I mean, is Scorsese stupid? No. Why does who's the third one, who was uh, Pauline kale Pauline kale uh, I mean but mm-hmm. Pauline kale was much more critical. I mean she sort of said, you know there are moments when it's great and there are moments when there are not, and she kind of has a sort of similar approach to me so it's not it's not an untenable position and and I think to sort of say that it's one of the worst films of all time is you know you need to see more bad films if you really think this <laughs> if you really think this i mean yeah. i can I see I see worse films yeah. no, no to, be, to be
3: to be honest I didn't I did not for saying I found it. I found it annoying on all the on for all the reasons I've said in that in that it wasn't a successful sequel. It didn't feel like the same world. But on its in 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 its own sort of madness and everything, there were and like you said, there were so many good scenes. I was never bored watching it. I was never I didn't have the same experience as Stella did. I didn't like to throw it in my hands. I was in I was thoroughly into it. I was, I guess, I guess if anything, I was Every time I enjoyed it, I was there again, oh, this could have been brilliant if the just if something had just if it was just an added ingredient of drawing it together and it hadn't me if they if they, if if they just hadn't if they just hadn't had the device of the fucking psychic the, the, uh, the synchronized the, the, hypnotism. The, the, the cause, cause that cause that to me was just that to me was it's absolute absolute the flaw. In the narrative was that bollocks yeah i, I mean they're, they're,
0: it's it's the sort <laughs> of it's, it, it is the macguffin upon which the entire plot depends because it's about characters coming together and forming psychic bonds which is why we're able to intercut between father lamont getting stoned by coptic not stoned as in um yeah yeah uh, high, <laughs> yes. uh, getting getting stoned by them but not getting high getting stoned with them getting stoned by coptic christians in ethiopia i think it is hmm intercut with the disastrous tap dance sequence in which in which Regan has a has I mean, that that was and yeah. collapses. I um, think
3: um, I think dogs for a thousand years could hear my teeth squeaking. When <laughs> yeah. That.
0: But but you know like, even oh, e- oh, even even the, even the fact that we have this, you know, because it's it's I mean part of the part of the film is saying that Regan is kind of a normal, you know, she's a normal, stupid mm. you know teenager and she's doing normal, stupid teenage things. And the, and you know it also like reminded me of, of New York, New York by Scorsese, which he was making at the same time, which is also kind of da, 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 we're on Broadway, but like mm. intercut with Richard Burton in Ethiopia getting getting um, stoned <laughs> by Coptic Christians, yeah. which which again you either go with that or you don't, and and I and I elect to go with it. You know what I mean? In my teeth. You know, part of me is like reeling. I mean, you know, it has been compared with Dario Argento in the way that Argento will do, will will put completely irrational things and non-rational things all together at the same time. Mm. Argento was, you know, big, very big deal in the late seventies. Just had Suspiria. We had like Eyes of Laura Mars, which tried to kind of bring the Argento aesthetic into into American cinema. Oh, and I love that movie. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a film which is also kind of gets gets some negative press, but in terms of what the film. Is, you know how you can compare it with with those sorts of films. I think there is some there is an aspect of Argento here, like Inferno, which is the one that he made in in New York. Um, um, and and there are touches of that, and with Argento, you just kind of have to go with it. And like the tap dancing intercut with with Richard Burton getting stoned again, that to me is like something from Hodorovsky or Argento and things like that. And to put that into a into a Hollywood sequel, you know, made for made for a giant studio, the sequel to the most financially successful film of all time when it came out, it was obviously beaten by Jaws shortly afterwards. I kind of have to salute that, even even if it's kind of all over the place. And what I would say about the, I want to call it the transponder. Which is the thing in Duda as my car, but it's it's not that. Um
1: <laughs> the synchronizer.
0: The, the synchronizer. I mean, there is a payoff with the synchronizer, which I think is kind of the key to the whole film, because I've read a lot of reviews of this film and I've and I've pro and con. And nobody talks about how it ends.
1: Yeah, well, the endings are different in the different edits as well, aren't ah, they? But, but right. one of them is uh the big close-up on Louise Fletcher and and you you can hear the kind of thrum of the synchronizer and her face is lighting up as if she's still in the hypnotic state even though she's out in the street surrounded by you know fire engines and and things Hmm. um so and yeah um, yeah
0: but but there is one where people walk off at the distance but I think the one the, the version that you've mentioned is I think must be Borman's ending because Ooh. it's beautiful, because the way that it's done, the, she's standing next to um, a flashing light of an of a ambulance or a car or something like this, mm. which gets brighter and brighter as the noise of the synchronizer, because there's there's something like a car engine or something like that, or something, there's something ambient, there's something um, diegetic mm. there that is making a noise like the synchronizer. And as it gets louder, it turns into the noise of the synchronizer. And as that happens, the pulsating of the white light gets, gets stronger. Now, that to me is very Bowman. Mm. and that as i say to me it's the, it's the, it's the key of the whole film and nobody ever seems to talk about it because the only way you can interpret that ending is that jean tuscan is in the synchronizer she's synced with yeah. something and the whole film has been her vision through the synchronizer yeah so whatever what, so, that. So, so whatever and you know, like Richard Burton hitting the thing with the with the with the with the, the 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 crutch and sexy Regan and Pazuzu and all that and all of the all of the kind of nonsensical things are within the world of the film, within the universe of the film, justified by the fact that everything you're seeing is Louise Fletcher's character somehow in sync with something, with somebody, yeah. whether it's Regan, whether it's the audience, whatever it is. I kind of tend to think it's the audience. I think we've been in the synchronizer the whole time. But we've been so deep into it that, in, and it, and then even in the world of the synchronizer, the synchronizer looks stupid. You know, the, I mean, Borman could have could have made a prop that looked like like a convincing thing. I mean, you've seen the production design <laughs> of the penthouse thing. The, yeah. You know, he, Borman is many things, but he's not stupid. He doesn't create this stupid tinny, crappy thing. That that kind of only makes sense if in the world of the synchronizer. That is what Gene Tuscan is hallucinating, or the person within her. Now that's a hell of a get out because it's like, and I woke up and it was all a dream. But it's like that is the text of the film. It's a bit like the Exorcist ends with the with the boxing sequence, what I call the boxing sequence. And mm. Exorcist 2 ends with this fairly unambiguous, I would say, assertion that everything mm. you've been seeing is from within the synchronizer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting um what you've hit on there neil is um in sync <laughs> in sync with um one of stella's complaints uh well not really a complaint a kind of hint that our, that both stella and i had when we we're discussing the things which baffled us about the movie that there is a mysteriousness to it that um you you want to understand how all these things fit together and i think the fact that the movie doesn't give that to you um you know straight
0: it it, it gives it it to you it gives sort of gives it to you in the last second of the film yeah which which by which point yes because the end i mean the actual climax is this you know buildings are falling apart and locusts are are swirling around
3: But, but and we haven't even mentioned the fact that you know there's two reagan's Yes, but as I say, as I say, whatever criticism, (laughs) whatever
0: criticism you throw at the film, is is can be bounced back by the film itself. I mean, there's a kind of a clue to it again at the very end, because you have this uh, spectacular taxi crash into Mm -hmm. the railings in this very affluent area of Georgetown, which is you know the very leafy. It's where Bird After Reading is set. It's it's actually
1: it's an amazing crash, isn't it? I've never seen a crash get so total.
0: And there's the <laughs> bit where somebody punches through the windscreen, which I think is an homage, oh, to, yeah. uh, homage to. I mean, how do they get through the windscreen without killing themselves? So anyway, you have this huge crash, and then the, the house, assist. the house is kind <laughs> of, um, you know, disintegrating in, in this giant storm of locusts. Nobody's there. Nobody comes out, and then mm-hmm. they go out onto the pavement, and there's a tr- there's a, a three sixty uh, shot of Louise Fletcher, and I think Richard Burton is in the shot. And as it goes round, you see that the whole street has come out
3: all at oh, the yeah. same time. Well, yeah, no, no. I mean I, I saw that and I just um I, it's brilliantly done. And Ooh. it is it is um
0: and it's and it's and it it draws attention to itself. And again, yeah, yeah. John John Bowman is many things, he isn't stupid. If you if you go to the effort of doing that, that is that is a, sort of, you know, on the one hand, well, how could that possibly be? Because people would come out, and in the real world, that wouldn't happen. I mean, do you say this about David Lynch? You know, if you watch a David I didn't Lynch mind film... That. I,
3: I, bought, I bought that that everything that was happening was happening in a sort of... Um, I guess in a sort of in a sort of halted reality while it was or or
0: a, or a subjective reality, which is a subjective say, reality. You know, and then the second, and the, second,
3: it made, the second she she's there by herself suddenly there's everyone's yeah, everybody's everyone around
0: and, and the, th- the thing the thing that tipped me off to it because louise fletcher just won the oscar for uh one floor of the cookies nest where she plays a more sympathetic uh medical person and you know <laughs> she, she, she's a she's a, a good actress she have been in you know she was altman discovery and all that and uh brainstorm which is another kind of uh film modi which uh you know deaths and mysteries going on and I read a review and it said Louise Fletcher says all of her lines as if she's in a trance. Mm. And I was like, mm. yeah, because she is. You know, and as yeah. I say that that I mean I'm not saying this is the key to the whole film but it's like it could be. You could you could actually interpret the whole film as the reason why she sounds like she's in a trance is because she is. The reason why the film makes no sense is because it's in the in the mind of this character. I mean, hmm. is she really Jean Tuscan in the in the film? I mean, there's uh, John Carpenter's the, the Ward with Amber Heard. I don't know if you've seen this one. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. in which you are led to believe that the main character is this beautiful young woman played by Amber Heard. And then guess what? At the end of the film, it all turns out to be a hallucination. I mean, you know, it's the incident at Owl Creek, uh, Ambrose Pierce. There is a whole tradition of things where you thought you have been watching all this. Well, in fact, you've been watching that. I mean, uh, Identity is, uh, is another one where uh, James, what's his name? So you know there is a genre of that, but again to sort of do that, and audiences having sat through two hours of like what on earth is going on here, even even in the recut, even in the sort of um, studio butchered version of it, that's it. It actually still makes sense on that level. So I'm mm. I, you know if you need the film to be to make sense, it can within the internal logic of the film as the film. And I always think you know where do you start the film? Where do you end the film? Where do you cut the where do you cut the the the, the wire here? Those are the most important things, and if that is the way that John Borman elected to end the film, that to me is the key to the film. Now, mm. as I say, I, 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 yeah, okay, it was all a dream in somebody's head. Well, you know, that's fine. But if you, if you actually, you know, need to cling to a rational explanation of everything, which, as I say, a lot of filmmakers get away with not doing that. I mean, David Lynch, of course, did *Dune*, which is another example of a sort of, you know, what was meant to be this giant megabucks thing, and and David Lynch delivered, delivered a David Lynch film. And, you know, the results we uh, are historical and I prefer David Lynch's Dune to Denis Villeneuve's Dune, you know, mm-hmm. and for all of its, you know, at the end of it, and he no, is I the Kwisatz, yeah. and, and you know, the, the idea of ending a, a film version of Dune by saying that um, Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach and then the film just ends, you know, every Dune fan is like, no, he's not, that's the one thing that he isn't, you know, and it's like, I just kind of take my hat off to David Lynch for, for having the sheer balls to do that. And I take my hat off to John Borman for having the sheer balls to do what he did there. If that's what he did, and I don't know, but if you want, if you want a rational, this is, happens because of this, then the ending of the film gives you that. If that's what you want, but as I say, to me, it's like, you know, I got hit on the head and I hallucinated The Exorcist Five. You know, that great, but you know, I think, I think the, what for, you for could argue, their money.
1: I think what I feel is that it depends on the temperament of the viewer and um, how much patience they have with um, with waiting for the, to be given the answer in that way obviously, as we've said, some people can deal with it for 10 minutes, other people might make it through the whole movie. Um, and, um, and me and Stella were certainly kind of intrigued, we want we wanted to be helped to piece it all together and you Neil are right now of uh, helping me to see the whole thing in the new light and I kind of would like almost to watch the movie again
0: I think you should I mean as I say I I don't think I think one viewing of it just isn't enough and that's it's not the only film like that you know I mean most most directors would say you need to see everything two or three times but I think the more you uh, to be honest the more I rewatch The Exorcist the less I, I get out of it so if that is the if that I mean I believe I can assess a film or I can have a good idea about the film as soon as I watch it. But, you know, re-watching and watching a film after five, ten years and things like that. And as, and as mm-hmm. I've said before, the more I re-watch The Exorcist, the more I can sort of appreciate the craft. That's kind of about all I appreciate about it.
3: Maybe and, that's and... why it's a comfort watch. because um, <laughs> Well, no, no, it's a comfort watch for me because I know every single bit of it. and I've And I just love, you know, they set out to do something. It's a very simple film. <laughs> It's like Jaws or something. It's a very simple film, done brilliantly.
0: But but if you have seen the film so often and you know all the scenes and you know all this kind of thing, isn't it more defiling that they keep tinkering with it?
3: You oh, know, yeah. The, the, I, the, the, I, the fact that I don't, I don't like all the... I I think I went through a phase of watching the versions and it's like they did with Blade Runner. And then and you just go, oh, do you know what? It was all right right back at the beginning. They were fine. But um, but I, I not can't not, think, not, I not Blade Runner. I still think Blade Runner does a, does a sort of definitive cut without the without the without the voiceover. But mm. any any hint that I mean we're getting very off topic. But any hint that Deckard is is a replicant is is missing the point of is is Ridley Scott missing the point of his own fucking film. To be honest um, with
0: you, I mean I actually see a, a parallel between Blade Runner and The Exorcist in that both of them. There are so many versions. There are so many controversies. Some of this, some of that. They take up so mm. much spe- cultural space. Ultimately, I think they're more trouble than they're worth. Especially Blade Runner, which is a film that I've given many chances to, and I can <laughs> see I can see buried in it. I can see why people love it. You know, to me, it's 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 nowhere near like anywhere near Ridley Scott's sort of highest level of work. Um, and that was even before I read the book, which is you know really a masterpiece. And mm-hmm. and the and the Blade Runner film is kind of like a, I would say a travesty of the book rather than a version of it. And I do and I have no hesitation saying I prefer Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You know, so mm-hmm. I've, I've I've given Denny Villeneuve down and I'm giving him an up there. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I've I've watched Blade <laughs> Runner in, in, in cinemas and stuff like that, and I can see I can see why people like it. I'm just not one of I'm just not one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, the endless versions of the endless tinkering at it. It's like Blade Runner. Which one is going to have the more the more versions of it? And uh, and ultimately, as I say. There are certain films that suck up so much cultural oxygen, and and I think the amount of of and you know we're going to get a, a a sequel to The Exorcist with Ellen Burstyn, you know is going to be in the yes. David Go- David Gordon Green having having you know revitalized uh, the halloween films is now doing uh, an exorcist thing with with ellen burston returning to the franchise for the first time in 50 years yada 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 and yeah. it's a bit and, and you know that and some people will take this as a cue to go and look at exorcist 2 and hopefully 12% of them will come out of it and go, I mean a lot of people watch it and go, oh god, people say it's the worst film of all time. It's not that bad. And 12% of people, which is a figure I've just completely made up, like a pseudoscience, like in the film, actually come out <laughs> of it and go, you know, that 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 is a film which is pay repays attention and there is something going on here and I'm going to give yeah. it another go. So to me it's it's as I say, I'm all I'm all in favor of the of those films unfairly marginalized and i can it's obvious why the excess 2 was marginalized because the first day it opened it was immediately classified as the gi- most gigantic embarrassment in hollywood history and that narrative took that narrative became solidified and i think hopefully yeah. discussions like this start to break the 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 mold of saying yeah. you know this was yeah, this, this this was this was officially described by Willie by the world as this, as this horrible embarrassment and it isn't
3: yeah hmm. it's um it's funny watching because um I mean you'll have seen it, but the uh when you were saying about Friedkin being ungracious, gracious, there's a clip of him talking and he's it's obviously it's like a stand-up routine and he's describing the Warner's the uh the Warner executives getting chased out of the screening, having to run down the run down the hill because they're limo drivers. Have gone away for two hours because they thought they'd be there for the whole film. And no, no, it's a great, it's a it's a great, it's a great, great it's
0: a great story. And Friedkin is a great raconteur and he's a great director. I mean, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I I recently watched for the very first time *To Live and Die in L.A.* I mean, I watched it like I think oh. in the in the last year, and I was like, whoa, you know, when Friedkin's on, he's like on, you know, mm. and like gets an amazing performance out of William Peterson, William Defoe in an early role. But again, you know, as I say, directorially, he's one of the greatest directors I think that's ever ever got hold of a camera um but he'll he could never make a film like Excalibur he could never make a film he could never make a point blank when Borman's bad he's absolutely abysmal I mean his last film I hope to God he makes another one what was it called King and Country I mean I was like had my head in my hands with that I was like this is John Borman what is what has gone on you know he's
3: 90 years old now Neil
0: yeah but you know Frederick Wiseman's (laughs) 92 and he's cranking them out Eastwood isn't stopping So, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, John Borman, he makes he made the Hope and Glory, which was his last I think his last Oscar nomination. Then he then he did this long awaited sequel to it. And I mean, Taylor of Panama is terrible. I mean, like, you know, I I went to the press conference because I had a copy of John Borman's book, The Emerald Forest, uh, The Making of the Emerald Forest, one of the best books about filmmaking ever, ever written. And I wanted to get it signed by him and it and was a press screening uh, I think Ian might have been there and I was so horrified by the Taylor of Panama I couldn't even speak to him
3: because oh, I, was
0: no. like, I was like what happens if he says what did you think of Taylor of Panama and also Is that like, the one with
3: Rosnan in it yeah yeah yeah
0: and a very young Daniel Radcliffe and mm. like very very young like a fetal Daniel Radcliffe was in that and so, as I say, I'm not saying that Borman is, you know, he, 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 he always he always hits the target, and and he certainly doesn't. But as I say, when he's when he's good, he's he can he can reach parts that other other loggers cannot reach, as they used to say in the seventies.
1: Oh, nice! <laughs> I feel like we we're we barely scratching the surface of of this kind of labyrinthine movie. Um, I just want to talk about one aspect of it. Um that I've, I've got a particular take on, um, because I think we could, it's really hard to think of where else to dive into. There are so many possible things we could talk about. But I want to talk about the casting. Uh, Neil, do you know how much involvement um, Borman had with the casting of Burton and Fletcher? Were they his choices or kind of imposed on him?
0: I would... Envisage that they were imposed. I mean, obviously, when Alan Burston said she didn't want to be in the sequel, they were a little bit stuck. And Alan Burstyn just won the Oscar for um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She was nominated for The Exorcist. So it's like, can't get Alan Burstyn? Who was the next Oscar winner? Let's go down the list. Louise Fletcher. Okay. Yeah. Um, I imagine, I mean, Borman is not really an actor's director. I mean, he, he, if you watch uh, Excalibur, it's, it's a sort of a big ensemble with you know mm-hmm. Nigel Terry, with all respect mm-hmm. to him in the middle of it. Nicole Williamson, (laughs) you know, I mean, Nicole Williamson in Excalibur is giving you know a performance to the ages. Performances, yeah. I mean, how much of that is John Borman? I mean, I don't. I mean, Nicole Williamson was a gigantic force of nature. Who, if Borman had probably tried to direct him, uh, Williamson would have punched him in the face. You know, so I think, I think. I mean, one of the
3: things Borman did do in Excalibur, though, was he deliberately cast Muir and Nicholson together. Nicholson uh williamson, oh, williamson williamson yeah 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 Together yeah. because they because they were exes ah they well to tap into was, was tap nice. into uh,
0: no i mean i think i think to, <laughs> to i think, tap I
3: into mean, tap into the awkwardness
0: you know in, t- in terms of rich in terms of richard burton in terms of louise Fletcher. you know these these were big names who and i think bomb kind of thought you know this is not this is not going to be a box of a smash here so we need all that we can get we've got linda blair We've got Max von Sydow coming back, who you know was was not exactly a, an actor who said no to a lot of projects. Uh, Jason Miller is out of it and is never mentioned.
3: No, that was Father, something Car- I was going to. Father mention. Father
0: Karras does not exist anymore. I mean, they do yeah. say three people were killed. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, so so you know it's I was, Bert, that's, you know, that's, it's that's Bert one of the Dennings. that's one of the great things about it. And this is this is also a problem with Exodus Three. Is it? It makes Karras' a sacrifice meaningless, but he's not even he's not even in
0: true, He's not. I mean, it's. I, as I say, I love Jason Miller in the film, and I think the character is fascinating. But mm. like, it's 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 comical in a way—the way that the way X's two airbrushes him out of the whole story. It's, it's,
3: another, it's another reason why you can, you know it's another reason. It's yeah, it's yet another. That and Bernstein not being in it—it's just. I mean, was Miller not in it because of his alcoholism, or? No, he just didn't want to itself, do it. I mean, you
0: know, I mean, he, you know, he, he was—he wasn't an actor. He got nominated for best supporting actor. Should have won. Uh, yeah. And he, and and he he acted, of course. He did, I mean, he's the father of Jason Patrick. Uh, mm-hmm. which is him, some people might know him. You know, he I had a he, he had he had a complicated um, complicated. He was a complicated person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he didn't want to do it and ellen burston didn't want to do it and you know so who do you get They get louis fletcher uh, they wanted, yeah, richard, yeah. They, they, wanted they, they wanted richard burton because you know he brings gravitas uh-huh. and and the story goes that he only did it because he wanted to do equus and the studio said, you can do Equus, but you have to do one for us, which was Exorcist II. And nobody in their right mind would claim that Richard Burton in this film gives one of his best performances. I mean, you know, he's one of the greatest uh, screen presences and could have been one of the greatest actors of all time. And, you know, in, in certain films that comes out, in this one, it does not. I think he was miscast. I think Louise Fletcher, there are problems with her. Linda Blair, uh, her performance is, 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 is sort of charming in a way. Kitty Wynn. Who we haven't mentioned is poor Sharon, who comes from the first film and you know mm. has a bad time. James Earl Jones, you know, who's a stage actor with immense experience, he mm. can come through it, even dressed with a giant locust uh, <laughs> outfit and spitting a cherry tomato at one very crucial moment, and uh, you know, lots yes. of, uh, and also no uh, you reason. know. He, Again, even if people don't like the film, the bit where Richard Burton stands on the on the spikes is really. I mean, I rewatched that in oh, slow yeah. motion and that is brilliant special effects. You know, you kind of go, yeah, yeah. "Ooh, brilliant." So, you know, and James L. Jones manages to do all sorts of things which in theory would look ridiculous and he manages to make them look good. So I think the casting of the They do look fine. ridiculous though, Neil. Uh, they do. Uh, well, they... yeah, but as I say, <laughs> he, uh, j- j- say that to James L. Jones. But um, no, well, I, I say, think
1: James L. Jones should have been the
3: lead. I think he should have that, played Farmer. I mean, Farm he obviously he should have been,
0: you know. I mean, he um, should have had Kukuma front and centre. But yeah, the problem, so have the, the, yeah, to improve
3: this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the problem is, I think, is that the film is about this synchronizer and the connections which have formed between Richard Burton as father Lamont, Regan as, uh, Linda Blair's Regan and, um, and Louis Fletcher as Gene Tuscan. That's what the film is about. And they're all in different films. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. They're all, they're, none of them seem to be acting in the same scene as each other. They seem to be all like intercut. So mm-hmm. as I say, this can all be excused by the fact that it's all in Louise Fletcher's head, like as we see later in brainstorm. So as I say, I, there's always a get out, and part of me wishes that it was that it that the cast, you know, originally it was gonna be John Voigt. John right?
1: Voigt was yeah, originally cast. Yeah. Which um, I think would have I I feel like um I, I love Richard Burton. Uh as you say, he's one of the great screen presences, but I just feel he's so miscast in this movie. And when Ian said that, you know he just felt there was something missing, which tied it all together. I feel like the whole movie might be tied together. If they'd have had somebody else in that role, some, uh, someone with a more human relatable kind of screen presence. My favorite moment, uh, was the bit where Dr. Tuscan says to, uh, Father Lamont, don't you ever need a woman? And he just goes,
3: yes. And that's it, and, you know, <laughs> and, and
1: that was a, that was a moment that demanded like a, a bit of human um ah. humility and connection. You could have played it in all kinds of ways, but Burton just says the word.
0: Um, and I, I really I know that they couldn't Ed bring Woodward Wood, Wood
3: in the Wickerman. Man, he ain't,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, apparently, he was having cue cards as the film went on. You know, he the, the lines were written around the set. I mean, there's the story of when he was in Yugoslavia at the time or around that time playing Tito, I think it's the Battle of Noretva. And and Batar Zivajinovic, who was the John Wayne of Yugoslavia, who was a gigantic film star, was the co-star, and he had to be off-camera holding Richard Burton's legs. Because Burton in his cups would just start wandering around. And the director was saying, No, you have to stay where you are. So eventually right. Batter was, like, Batte was holding onto him by, by, by his legs to stop him from wandering off. So as I say, you know, it's it's a terribly sad story, and we can, you know, we can mm. there's the whole sort of hellraiser thing. Um, and he shouldn't have done it, you know, and it would be a better film if John Boyd was in it. And, you know, there we are. But the film the film, the film kind of is what it is. And the fact that Burton is delivering this performance, I mean, the bit where the bit where he turns up in the shirt he's been dressed as a priest the whole time then he goes to Africa and he comes back and he's wearing this like casino gamblers bizarre <laughs> shirt that he wears for the whole of the no no explanation of that it's a, 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 a red it said it's his what? i've been to Africa shirt and he mm. comes and, he, and he's wearing this bizarre shirt and he's like but this put is in a trance but nobody kind of knows why is he in a communion with 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 Linda Blaze in a communion with Max von Sydow you know and 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 again the whole Burton thing it just sort of adds to the entirely baroque bizarreness of the film, which, in a way, the more baroquely bizarre the film is. I mean, if it was John Boyd or Stacey Keach or, I don't know, Brian Dennehy giving a a beautiful performance which, you know, plums the depths of all that, it would be a completely different film. And the fact that Mm -hmm. we have Burton kind of like waxwork, sweating waxwork, sweating whiskey or whatever he was drinking at the time, (laughs) you know, I wish wish he had not hit the bottle. I wish he was still with us and all that kind of thing. And it's a terribly tragic story. And if this was a thing that sort of pushed him further into the bottle, God damn you, Exodus uh, um, 2. I don't I think say,
1: it was. I, th- I think the, those demons were running far deeper mm, even. But, than but, this. I, but I
0: think also, you know, there's Richard Burton who could have been, you know, he was anointed by, by Olivier as one of his successors. And he looks mm. at Anthony Hopkins and he looks at Exodus 2 and he's thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, I'm seducing Linda Blair, who's like a 17-year-old nubile. You know, we didn't get to the double the double Regans, but you know, there is a, a very uncomfortable sequence at the end where yeah. you know he he kind of seduces her, then rips out her heart or whatever is going on. And apparently, the original script was was you know they pushed it into sort of Emmanuel Emmanuel meets the Exorcist territory.
5: Um,
0: so you know, Burton, no, and, and it's the self-loathing that's the problem. And it's all very well if you he, if he's in the world of Graham green. Where if we're the an honorary consul or under mm-hmm. or under the volcano, the Malcolm Lowry thing, if the self-loathing is becomes a, 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 a vibrant part of the character, that's fine. But if you detect that it's Richard Burton who's hating himself, that he's that he's having to do this, to do Equus, you yeah. know. But who who? When was the last time anybody watched Equus? A couple
3: Sorry. of years ago, actually. I do like Equus.
0: <laughs> yeah, but as I say, Equus is too. Even though it's fallen a long way down the cultural agenda. Is a lot higher up the cultural agenda than Equus, which is a Maybe. a very tasteful adaptation of a very successful play about horses getting their eyes poked out, um, which <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody um, seems to talk about anymore. You know. So mm-hmm. as I say, the, 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 if, if well, even Daniel Burton,
3: Radcliffe did it if, not so long ago, well,
0: yeah. If Richard Burton to bring he,
3: Daniel Radcliffe into uh, but,
0: uh, a, the, the hidden the hidden presence of, the, of this uh, podcast is Daniel Radcliffe, who happens to be joining us now. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, as I say, I think Richard Burton would be would be very surprised and rather horrified that the fact that of the two films that he made at that time, Exodus 2, is the one that we're talking about today. But, you know, <laughs> tough Richard Burton. Sometimes, uh, the, you know, the most badly written thing or the most incoherent thing is the thing that is alive. And it's like, I remember when Tony Scott did Domino, and I defended Domino. I was one of the very few people who wrote a positive review. I loved Domino. I thought Domino was great. And I said, mm-hmm. it's a bit like it's a bit like in um, Frankenstein. The monster may be horrible, but he's alive. And The, <laughs> the Exodus 2, the there are so many dead films that the, the clutter up the, the, our brains and our landscape. And they are more and more of them getting made. And in the 70s, you could get a film like The Exodus 2. And even if it's a horrible patched together monster of a film, it's alive.
3: That's yeah,
1: beautifully said. That, that was ca- kind of a summation. Is there anything that you've got in that you'd like to add to that?
3: Well, no. I think um, I think it, I'm glad I finally watched it. In that it's it wasn't half as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it but it did not work as a sequel. But then, as points out, these are just these are just movies.
0: Good and also um, you know as I
3: say that, that and I didn't I didn't hate it as much as uh, I guess maybe I'm not as invested. In uh, the Exorcist world, as as the fact that Newt gets killed at the beginning of Alien Three, <laughs> <laughs> um, which just ruined Alien Three for me. But um, yeah, no, no, there, there are lots of mad things in it, and I will watch it again. Um,
2: Basically,
0: the, the Exorcist Two is a fascinating film because everything you say about it that is that you say is bad can also be cited as an, as as a positive thing. And as I say, that ultimately shows that you you can't talk about good and bad in this film. You can talk about good and evil. Mm. And, and, one, does. And, 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 one, and, you know, the whole point that Borman wanted to do in the film was make a positive film, which was optimistic because mm. he said the, the first film is, is effective and, you know, but sort of vicious and it's negative. And even though Regan mm. is exercised, you know, the two exorcists are both killed. You know, the, the 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 young priest with his torment, he he has a horrible death. And and I think the reason why Borman didn't want to do it was because he's you know, to him it was a story about evil. And the Exodus 2 is a story about good. Hmm. And I and I think the film that he made
3: We've not even mentioned was, the phrase the good locust.
0: The good locust, you know. Yes. I mean, is the, is that? I mean, uh, uh, there's an American critic, Fernando Troce who said the whole film is in a locust mind. That was how he. That was how he. Uh, how he. How he defended it. And He wrote a very positive review of the film. I got to um, say, I didn't.
1: I didn't understand the locust stuff, but we don't. Have, we don't have time to go into that.
0: Yeah, tune in for part two of our discussion, which will be joined by <laughs> locust experts so to tell us that all that locust stuff was also pseudoscience. But as I say, you know, to me, everything you say about everything you can say negatively about that film can be turned on its head. So it's a lie and it's about good and it, and I, say, I think it succeeds on those terms because I've, I've been <laughs> in a
3: locust swarm when I was in Africa I was in a train and suddenly a locust swarm came over the uh, as sunset happened this it, is this it looked the nearest- a lot like that
1: is this the nearest way get into a clang from you this episode I've met the locusts
3: No no yes, so was the locusts was, came and they all your... just suddenly started flopping into our carriage and we had to
0: And you move. go like this and then they all go away I, but just, <laughs> this, I wish this... I'd
3: seen the film at that point and I could have <laughs> made a Linda Blair reference I mean that's heavy. Doing that... the, I thought I'm, she was going to have a I must have making that last Omen Very dust. very dust. I'm very very audio
0: I'm very, very <laughs> impressed by your research that you went to Africa and went into a swarm of locust to see whether you know <laughs> it, there is actually the good locust that can that can spread the benefits. But, yeah. uh but yeah, the lo- the locust. I think I, I, I,
3: think I, the I pushed the uh, good locust under my heel. What,
0: what does it say? It said that the good the good locust teaches the rest of the, the locust to be just happy go lucky gra- happy go lucky grasshoppers. Yes.
5: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and What's I was like, fact? I want to be the happy go lucky grasshopper. And John Borman and Linda Blair. Made a happy-go-lucky go, happy-go-lucky grasshopper, but because of the deep cynicism of the late nineteen seventies, it was the the, lo- the, the, the the all all people wanted was locusts. They didn't want a happy-go-lucky grasshopper. Oh,
3: yeah. man. I mean, it's a. I guess you could say it's a glorious mess. I think um, you could say that home. definitely. But a bit like a bit like um a bit like Exorcist three, which kind of had the Exorcist crowbarred into it, which is Blatty's fault as much as anyone's. This was this was like if 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 the both those films had been separate movies like the ninth configuration was, then they can sit in their own place without being sequels.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I read a great thing and it was about Exorcist, III and I said what they should have said was call it Legion, which was the book that it's based on. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, and, that was and, the... and 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 not tell people it's about the Exorcist, and because then it when when you watching it and it's like. Oh my god, it's Father Karras. Oh my god, it's an Exodus. Ah oh, mind blown, yeah. you know. But the, the, one of the funniest thing I said that I read about Exodus 2 was it said the film plays like a complete series of deleted scenes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'd love to make a film that feels like an entire series of deleted just scenes. Deleted scenes. Yeah. No, there is there it. is nothing there. It's just, it's just the deleted scenes. But as I say, sometimes that that is I think it was James Benning said, you know, we have enough good films. <laughs> <laughs> Do something else, and and even even if you are crapped on by a great height by those who who should be helping you, I think Borman is having the last laugh. Mm. I think he's wherever wherever yeah. wherever he is. We we send, I send him the power of the locust. Yes, I'm
3: yeah. uh, I'm almost convinced. Um, I-, I definitely I definitely would. Tell our listeners who hopefully uh, haven't been put off. I don't think they would have done. Or we'll go and watch it anew. Yes, uh... oh,
1: I mean the great thing about this movie, I, I think it's unspoilable. I think you know, no matter how oh, yeah. many details we give away about what's in it, there's a, there will always be more to discover.
0: Oh, um, wait, what locusts? Or... Yeah, no, no, never... ma- no matter what you, no matter what you read, no matter what you think it's going to be. <laughs> Yeah. It, it, it just it, synchronizes. It, no matter what you think it's going to be, it will still amaze it you, will, which I think, compound as I, you. which, as I say, as I, whether, whether you like it or not, you've got to take your hat off, but, if, but, but the power of cinema to do that, but not, not, the, not the power of Christ commands you, the power of cinema commands you.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I'm going to take up your suggestion, Neil, and watch the movie again, bearing in mind that Louise Fletcher is constantly in a trance, to <laughs> see how it stands <laughs> up.
0: Actually, actually, it's better if you go into a trance as well. <laughs> so um, uh, I think I think I sent you the 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 the, the transponder, the, uh, the synchronizer. Oh. So make oh, sure, make sure you activate too. it, and then you have to sync it's... up with Louise Fletcher's character, and you'll come out saying that is not even that that's the beyond the greatest film of all time that's just
1: yes. the greatest thing of all time I will lower my tone to meet Louise Fletcher
3: <laughs> yes
1: oh wow <laughs> well guys I I think we have scratched the surface and and more than that is not as much possible in an hour or so um of XS2. too what what a fascinating movie it is and yeah, yeah thank you so much for your passionate and incisive um analysis of the movie
0: Ooh. no thank you i mean i did i did watch it with, with a couple of friends who've never seen it about a year and a half ago and we were all reeling i mean i'd seen it i saw it years ago in cinema and uh not when it came out because i was six but i i did re-watch it and then i re it again uh last week and uh, uh because of this and and i then dug into it and as i say the more you dig into it it's like it's like the Tutan commons too the more you want to find and, and as i say todd mccarthy's article is apparently one of the best articles written about how a potentially great film was ruined by the studios. But the irony is, it's a great film anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Thank you, studios.
3: Yeah. Good wins in the end. Thank Amazing. you. Thank you, Hollywood. Yeah, we'll have to put some, uh, we'll put lots of links in to these yes. various things.
0: Hooray for Hollywood.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, well, you know, we, you. And
0: by the side, we went, we, we, we've done this whole podcast without saying the magic word.
3: Which is what is Kazuzu. The- oh, oh,
0: didn't say Pazuzu. <laughs> Pazuzu. somebody said, somebody Pazuzu. somebody said it's, it's it's the name that a five year old would give to their imaginary puppy. Um uh, it's,
3: it's also a real name.
0: But as I say, I just I just just love the fact that we managed to talk for whatever we've talked and we've never once we said Kokumo, because in the film, the drinking game is every time they say uh, Kokumo, you you drink, uh, you drink a rum. And every time they say Pazuzu, you drink a whiskey and halfway (laughs) through, you're watching the greatest film of all time. Isn't isn't there, isn't there a place in tonight. Africa
1: where Richard Burton just spends a whole scene just saying Kakumo over yeah, and and, and he people. goes up to Kukumo? random strangers
0: Kukumo? saying, "Do you know Kakumo?" And there's this great <laughs> bit where the guy goes, "No, Kakumo, no," and the camera stays on him, <laughs> and, it, and the guy's like, "No, no, Kakumo," <laughs> and it's like, you go, "Yeah, down the hatch."
3: Down. Oh, nice! Now, this is where you like like this film more than any other. <laughs> it's
1: not a bad reason. Tonight Neil, is a thank a you is sponsored so Sponsored
0: by the Norwegian will be an Ass. Oh.
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! It is called Ass. We have oh, wow. a kind
1: of ass on camera on the Zoom I, battle. This,
0: this proves that I do know my ass from my elbow, despite what I've been saying for the last <laughs> for the last hour. This get. is
1: this is a bonus oh, for goodness. Patreon viewers who can see the video. <laughs> Excellent. If that won't get us some money, I don't know. Well, Neil, thank you so much. Thank you very
0: much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Right. We'll <laughs> okay. say good night then, everybody, and and
3: we'll say good night to the listener. Good night,
0: good night. listeners. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Good night.
3: Good night. That sounded like the end of uh, Rainbow. Yes. But, um,
0: she's... George Zippy and
3: Bungle.
0: Yeah,
3: and Pazuzu. <laughs> <laughs> George Zippy and Pazuzu.
2: You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash andnowpodcast. podcast stops.